Hello, this is Pastor Trent. I want to welcome you to the Mountain Home Church, the Nazarene Sermon Podcast. We are thrilled that you are tuning in to hear sermons from our ministries here at our church. It is our hope that the Spirit of Christ would be present with you as you listen today. I do want to take just a moment to invite you to reach out and connect with us. On our website, we have a way for you to do just that. You can visit www.mhnazarene.org slash connect and fill out a very brief form. There's a spot to leave contact info, ask questions, and even to request prayer. Also, be sure to indicate that you listen to us through our SoundCloud podcast to let us know where you're listening. May the Lord be with you this day. Grace and peace to you. Last week, we started on a little journey. We started on a little four-week sermon series talking about the holy life. What does it mean to live a life of, of holiness? The real question becomes, how does a life of faith impact how we live? How does a life of faith impact how we live. And, and as we shared last week, um, this, this whole year has kind of been a journey on that same, on that same trajectory and on that same note. Um, Jesus' instruction that we've been living with all year long, not so with you, was originally spoken to his disciples, originally spoken to his disciples that, that kind of fell into patterns that looked very similar to the world. They wanted to know, well, who's going to sit on your left and who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to have the places of honor when you come into your kingdom, Jesus? Because I'd really like to call dibs, right? Walk out the door, shotgun, right? I, I just want to sit next to you, Jesus. And Jesus was like, we're falling into the same patterns. We look exactly like the world around us. And, and it's just... It, that's not how we're called to live. Not so with you. Not so with the people who follow after Jesus Christ. So not so with you has been our invitation to let our faith guide our actions, inform our responses, to care for our neighbor, to watch out for those that we walk along beside. And last week we spent most of our time talking about kind of... Uh, a scriptural basis for, for living a holy life. From Romans chapter 6, we, we have Paul saying, we can die to sin. That sin doesn't have to reign in these mortal bodies, in these bodies in which we live and walk and breathe and move and talk. Not calling us to a flawless perfection that we never make mistakes, but a holy life. But today, I, I wanted to... Uh, I don't just want to stay kind of in that, the theological, the scriptural basis for, for having a holy life be possible in our lives. I also wanted to give some practical steps. And so today we're going to talk about uh, a practical step. Today our scripture passage comes from the Old Testament and is known about a very well-known character, King David. Anybody heard of King David before? Probably many of you have. Now David often gets the, well, he was a really good guy treatment right? I mean, he was the standard upon which all of Israel's leaders were then based. If, if, if there was a king, it was, man, how does he measure up to King David? He was referred to a man after God's own 
heart. I heard it. Someone, someone had heard of that before. That's right. He, he, but he wasn't perfect. David certainly wasn't perfect. He led well. He was, he was patient for the throne. He was a good militaristic leader. But he made mistakes. And today we're, we're taking a peek into one of those times when he dealt with those mistakes. So we're going to turn to 2 Samuel today, chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can open them with me. Or if you have a, a device that points to 2 Samuel, you can do that, chapter 12. Um, and today, reading out of the common English, I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 today. So out of reverence for the reading of God's word, those who are willing and those who are able, would you please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. A reading today from 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting with verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When Nathan arrived, he said, there, was, there were two men in the same city. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing. Just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb, and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup. That doesn't sound sanitary, but even sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had arrived. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the visitor. David, King David, got very angry at the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the ewe lamb seven times over because he did this, and because he had no compassion. You are that man. Nathan told David, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you over Israel and delivered you from Saul's power. I gave your master's house to you and gave his wives into your embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was too little, I would have even given more. Why have you despised the Lord's word by doing what is evil in his eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife as your own. You used the Ammonites to kill him because of that. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own, the sword will never leave your own house. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God. Please have a seat. title of my sermon this morning is, last week it was The Holy Life is Possible. title of my sermon today is The Holy Life is Accountable. The Holy Life is Accountable. We will get to that just a bit later, but before we do, let's, let's take a look at this passage a little bit. Um, many of us know the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Some of us don't, and so I, I just want to I just want to review, and if you want to read the story, just back up one chapter. Read through 2 Samuel chapter 11 sometime this week, and you'll get the full, the full version. I'll give you the, the cliff notes or the spark notes or whatever the, the notes are that where you don't have to read the whole story, but you read it real quick. Don't do this. It's not good. Um, 
Many of us know this story, um, and it's muted a little bit by its familiar, familiarity a little bit. In, in 2, Samuel, or first, yes, 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, it says, it opens with these words, In the time when kings go off to war, King David stayed at home and sent people off to war for him. Um, and, and as he was home, he, he saw a beautiful woman that was bathing on her roof, rooftop, which was a common practice, and... He got jealous eyes, and things began to work up inside of him. And so as king, he called this woman to his house and slept with her and, and impregnated her, and she came to bore a son. Well, to try to hide over this sin, to try to hide over this, uh, this action that he had taken, he calls Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, home and says, come home, take a break from the war, go to your house and make yourself comfortable, just take a break. And Uriah the Hittite, the man of integrity who, out of reverence and honor for the men who were on the battlefield, didn't go home but slept outside the king's gate and said, if my brothers who are fighting are not at home, then I won't go home either. I will stay at the ready for when I'm called back. And David says, well, that didn't work out the way I wanted to. And so he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note. And that note was his own death sentence. Instructions to the commander to put Uriah the Hittite at the front of the battle, at the point where the fighting was the most intense, and at the middle of the battle to send a signal that everyone else knew meant to retreat and leave Uriah the Hittite out in the middle of the battlefield. The army does this, Uriah is killed. And David says, covered my tracks. Got that all cleaned up. And then took Bathsheba in as one of his wives. And then we have this story. This story that we read of Nathan and David. This story is blended with just all sorts of, of themes and overtones of, of power and control, of lust, of sin. We have three commandments clearly broken. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. Shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. And David goes, strike one, strike two, strike three. In one quick story. With that disparity of power, there's no way that this action is anything other than coercion, anything other than taking advantage of the position that he has. So Nathan gets sent. Nathan the prophet, the one who's, and prophets are kind of these weird people that hear from God and have messages for the country or the nation, and they didn't even have Facebook to share it with. I mean, they, they went, had to go in person. And so Nathan gets called to go into the audience of the king and say something pretty scary to a person of power. Here we have a man who's broken these three commandments in quick succession and, and God tells Nathan, oh no, go ahead, it'll be fine. David needs to hear this. 
And I wonder, we, we don't have any picture of, of how Nathan responded or how willing Nathan was or how excited he was for this little assignment that he had been given. He was sent to the literal halls of power to, of the nation of Israel. Armed with a story, the story of a little lamb. Now this certainly is a parable. We, we think of parables as the ways that Jesus taught in the New Testament. This is a parable that we see in the Old Testament. A form of, of indirect communication. I had, a, I had a chance to work alongside a, a filmmaker by the name of Arnie Yitriide for a, for, a, for a number of years, a few years, back, a few years back. He talked about the difference between direct and indirect communication. The power of, of story is this indirect communication. He didn't say, what you did was bad, King David. You need to repent. He didn't say that. I wonder, I wonder how David would have reacted in that instance. King, you've messed up. You shouldn't have done that. Probably would have gotten defensive. Probably would have fought back a little bit. Instead, he got King David to feel the power of what he had done. That's what Nathan did by telling this impressively unjust story of two men and the actions of the rich man. It was common in Old Testament days. We see this in other stories where, where visitors show up and, and what, do, what do the people do? They prepare a meal for the person who has come. We see that in Abraham's story. We see that in other biblical characters throughout the Old Testament. But in this instance, the rich man, the man who had plenty, who had plenty to sacrifice, plenty to share, says, well, I don't want to cook one of my own lambs for this meal. Let's take the poor man's, you. And David says with righteous anger, just with this, just dripping with uh, disgust. Like, how could this man do this? Like, this is not how you behave when you have means, when you have, I mean, I'm a king. Why? I, I know how to act. When you're rich, you take one of your own lambs. It's like spare change. David says the man is demonic. Requires restitution, not just one to one, but seven times over. He should repay the poor man, lacking all compassion for the rich man. And just when all this righteous anger, this rage is built up in David, this sense of, of justice, of, of I'm, I'm a, I know how to lead, this, this man must be punished. When all of that was built up in King David, Nathan drops the mic. You are that man. Just when David is about to crawl out of his skin with rage and to call for this rich man's head, Nathan turns the page and reveals the target for all of David's righteous anger himself. Indirect communication. Not, not telling him to his face, oh, you've sinned, but letting him feel the injustice and the anger. As you read the story of David, David has uh, some lifelong consequences for the actions that he took. And you can follow the story of David and David's sons. The son that was born uh, ends up dying. The, the son that, that Bathsheba um, 
carried to term ends up dying. And, and, and it, the, the, the Bible recounts kind of the price that David paid over the remainder of his lifetime. And you can follow that throughout the, the remaining chapters of Second of Samuel if you're interested. But today I'm more interested in, in talking about something David didn't have. Someone walking beside him. David got into this scary place, this, this lonely place of being the guy on top, the guy in charge, the guy in control, the guy in command, the guy at the top of the food chain, the top of the chain of command, the top rung of that ladder, which seems like we have to climb, the pinnacle of success. And it left David vulnerable. He had no one walking alongside of him. No one to ask him questions about his failures. No one to ask him questions about the habits that he had in his life and the tendencies that he took. In short, he had no accountability for the ways in which he was living life. I really believe that the holy life that God is calling us to live, that Christ is inviting us to, not so with you, requires accountability. That when we live in pursuit of, uh, of this life to which God is calling us towards, responding to this invitation uh, that Jesus invites us to, to live a little differently, that it takes someone it takes someone who knows us, someone who's willing to ask us, someone who's willing to open up to us about life, about what's really going on. And that's really important. It's really important for our lives. I was, I was talking, not this past week, but two Wednesdays ago, uh, about John Wesley in our, in our membership class. Uh, Nazarenes like to talk about John Wesley simply because he's, he's kind of in our, our theological heritage. Um, Wesley was, in fact, an, an Anglican priest, a, a priest in the, in the Church of England, who eventually became the founder of the Methodist Church in the course of his ministry. Um, the Methodist Church is kind of what eventually uh, one of the streams of, of thought became the Nazarene Church in the early 1900s. But in his ministry, what he did is he began to form people into to these small bands or these small groups of people who would meet on a regular basis. And, and, and they had a rhythm. And he said, in order to grow, in order to thrive, in order to, to become closer to God, this is what you can do. You can, can meet together regularly. And, and, and here's a set of questions that you can ask. And, and he just had this real method to growing closer to God. In fact, the word Methodist was like a jab. Oh, you're such a Methodist. Freeberg, you're, you're just a Methodist. You got a method for everything. Just do this, do this, and, and everything will work out. It was like this insult that he, that had been shot his direction about the way that he followed his faith. <laughs> and I don't know this, but I think Wesley was like, yeah, maybe we'll be the Methodists. Maybe, that, maybe that'll describe us. Maybe that'll be a way that we can characterize 
ourselves. But what would these groups ask each other? I, I handed this out in January. I don't know if any of you came to our Wesleyan Covenant service this past January. It's all been a long time ago. Um, but when we did, I gave, I gave this handout. And, and it, it had a list of the questions that these bands, these small groups would ask each other when they got together every week. Five questions. Are you ready for them? Number one. What known sins have you committed since we last met? Well, there's an opening question, right? Like, skip the icebreaker and let's dive in, okay? Um, and and the, the participants were, were expected to answer truthfully and vulnerably, and to not only that, but to, to keep record and to keep track so that when this question was asked, that they could give vulnerable answers. What sins have you committed? Second, what temptations have you met with? Number three, how were you delivered from those temptations? Number four, what have you thought, said, or done that you feel might be sinful in your life? And number five, do you have any desires that you wish to be kept secret? Let's just get them on the table now. And by this, these bands, these small groups of people would come together to share and to be honest and to be vulnerable. Why? So they could grow closer to Christ. All of a sudden, we see why these people were accused of having such a, uh, such a method, right? How methodical is that? that we examine our lives to that depth and to that degree every week with a group of people not to feel the shame, not to be broken down and beaten down again and say, I messed up, but to have a group of people to lift us up, to hold us high, to say, I'll be praying for you to say, do you remember where you were two months ago when we were meeting every week and, and where you are now? Look at the growth. Look what God has done. And to celebrate that. This is the kind of accountability that I think God invites us to. The thing about David's story is it's an example of what happens when it's not in place. And I want to tell you that without intention, without deliberately and methodically setting up that kind of safety and that kind of structure and that kind of accountability in your life, the place where David stands is where we all stand, where we all are. And the risk is, the trouble is, when we leave ourselves there, we remain vulnerable. In David's case, God sends the accountability. Woo. <laughs> like, I'm not sure I'm ready for that, God. That can't be an easy day when God sends the accountability. Instead, I think he invites us, take the step yourself. Own it for yourself. Find someone in your life who you can trust, who you can meet with. I mean, in, in David's case, God listed 
the things that he had done. In verses 7 and 8, I anointed, I delivered, I gave the house, I gave wives, I gave Israel and Judah. Look at all this provision I have given you. And in, at the end of verse 8, he says, and even if that was too little, I would have given even more. The beautiful thing at the end of this tragic passage even in the midst of David's utter failure, God is there. God is still providing. God is still supplying and full of grace and full of love and wanting the best for his child. I truly believe that that a true pursuit of the holy life, a true pursuit of of living the way that God wants us to live has this component to it, that it seeks out accountability. (laughs) Accountability is a lost art form in our world today. In fact, I believe the world has developed the art form of skirting accountability. (laughs) Let, let me get away with as much as I can and still, still get by. You're only wrong if you get... I want to make myself look as good as possible. Why has true accountability become so rare? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm not enough of a prophet to really, to, to really speak into that question, but I, I see the symptoms around us every day, right? It flies in the face of all three of these mantras, this this escape by if you can. You're not wrong unless you get caught. Accountability is telling on yourself. It's owning up to your mistakes when you could skate by, when you could get away with it, get out of jail free. And I believe if we're going to be truly passionate and committed to living the holy life, that we're going to take steps to say, I want to find that person in my life that can hold me accountable to my biggest struggles, to the things I deal with every day. Those are what I need help with. The things I struggle with might not be the things that you need accountability for. What are the things that God would invite us to, to say, I need to find a friend who loves me enough that my relationship with them will not be in jeopardy when I share with them, friend, I need you to ask me about this every, every week, maybe every day. Last week, we talked about the holy life being possible. If it's possible, why is it so elusive? Why is it so hard to come by? Part of it is that the hard work of accountability. Find someone, finding someone you trust. Someone who won't change her opinion of you no matter what. Someone who won't look down on you because of what you tell him. And invite that person deeply and wholly into your life so you can pursue the life that God has called you to live. One that doesn't look like the world one that looks a little different. 
I'm gonna invite the praise team to come and join me up here on the platform as we close. As we close, the call to live a life that's holy is this invitation to live differently and to follow Jesus, as Jesus says, "Not so with you." It invites us into a different way of living, different than the ordinary, different than the the common, different than the world lives. Today, the call is to not be like David. Don't look the other way when it comes to your shortcomings, to your, to your failures. Instead, let accountability start with you. Take it seriously. Trust that there are people, people in this room today who love you enough to hold you accountable and to ask those tough questions, to help you be the person, the holy child of God that you wish to be. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Lord, today we come to you just reminded, reminded of the call to live a holy life. It's not simple. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. But today, God, I pray that there would be some today who would say, I want to live the life that God is calling me to live so much that I'll take this radical step. This radical step to help me with my anger. To help me with my wandering eyes. To help me with my phone habits. To help me with the way I treat my kids or the way I treat my parents to help me with this habit that I've fallen into, God. Lord, I pray today that you would give people the strength and the courage to take that step. For I realize that when I don't, when I have it in my life, it puts me in the same vulnerable spot that we read David was in. And Lord, we desire to be closer to you. We desire to live the life that you have called us to live and have intended for us to live. So give us strength. Give us strength this day to do that. Be with us. Give us courage, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to be close to your side. Would you please stand, those who are willing and able, as we close out our service today. We, we've said these words all year long. The words of Jesus to his disciples, not so with you. Today we are reminded this is our call to living a holy life. Uh, as, I, as I offer a benediction, I invite you uh, to just extend your hands as a physical reminder that we receive this prayer today. Lord, our desire is to live a life that is holy and that is surrendered to you. As we go forth into our world, give us the means and the opportunity and the profound courage to live the accountable lives you wish us to live. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Go in the love of Christ. Thanks for joining us today on the Mountain Home Church the Nazarene podcast. Don't forget to visit us at mhnazarene.org/connect if you'd like to connect with us and have a great week.